Scripture reading this morning will be from Psalm chapter 2. If you find that, you can stand. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the inheritance, the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, you are the sovereign king, the Lord of lords, king of kings. And God, we are people who who have acknowledged, Lord, that we are nothing before you, apart from you. We have no power. All power and might belong to you. We thank you, God, for your grace toward us. We thank you that you love us and all that you have done for us in Jesus. I pray, God, that as we look at your word this morning, that we would again just have you impress upon us that you are our sovereign, powerful God, and you love us and have nothing in your heart but grace toward us, and that we would be humbled before you, Lord, and walk before you in the in the praise of you that you are so worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to be looking this morning in Second Samuel at chapters 8, 9, and 10. They kind of form a unit. 8 and 10 are more of David's battles and victories. He is mopping up the uh, territory of Israel as defined um, by Abraham and Joshua. First time this has been done, Joshua didn't complete it, and, um, and it hasn't happened since then, and David comes on the scene, and through his faith and obedience to God, what seemed like an impossible thing for now several hundred years is taken care of quickly, and all of these enemies are put down. I think in these chapters 8 and 10, we, we see the sovereign power of God working through his man, the king. Remarkable time. And so in chapter 8, it says, Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. That had not been done before, and the Philistines will never be a problem again. And David took control of the chief city, of the, uh, the chief city from the hand of the Philistines, and, he, and that would have been Gath. He defeats that, and in doing so, takes control of the whole area. 
And then he turned to Moab. So Philistines were on the eastern, western seaboard near the Mediterranean Ocean. Moab on the other side of the Jordan River to the east. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. We don't know why David killed two-thirds of them and let one-third survive. Just not enough commentary there to know what was going on. But we know that, it, that at least David is showing some mercy to these people. And they will never again trouble Israel as they had in the past. And then verse 3, David turned to the north. And David defeated um, Hadadezer. Had had, see, I spent time looking at all these words here to get them right. It's hopeless. The son of Rahab, king of Zobah, and he went to restore his rule at the river, the river being Euphrates. And so David has turned to the north, and he's brought um, an initial peace here between himself and Syria by defeating them. And then he says that he has all these um, capture of horsemen and their horses, and he hamstrings the horses, and he takes a few chariots captive. All of this, David, is, is, is asserting um, by, by the in, empowerment of God, um, his authority over these nations. And then after turning to the north, he turns to the south, and David will defeat the Edomites, so down in verse 13. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt, and he put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went, and David reigned over all Israel, so David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. So this is a king who is just exercising complete authority over all the territory. Chapter 10, he starts to have trouble again with the Syrians and with the Ammonites. And he is courageous over them and, and goes to war with them and, um, and defeats both the Syrians and the Ammonites once for all. And so it's a lot of, of just recounting here of the victories that God has given. Just a few observations, then I want to spend the most, most of our time looking at chapter 9. These nations, for the most part, that David was defeating were within the territory of Israel, right within the borders that God had had described for Abraham. The Ammonites, the Edomites were a little bit outside it, but not much. In fact, the Edomites would have been in that territory just east of the Jordan River um, that was given to Gad, Manasseh, and Ephraim. The Syrians also would have been in the territory that was originally allocated because that territory was to go all the way up to the Euphrates River. The Ammonites were the only ones who were a little bit outside that territory. And the only reason David went after them, it would seem, is because they attacked him. David sent some, um, some emissaries to the new king of the Ammonites to, just to give his condolences because the man's father had just died. This is in chapter 10. Apparently sometime earlier in David's life, probably in the time that he was running from Saul... David had become friends of the king of the Ammonites. And now that the man has passed away, David sent emissaries to the son saying, I'm sorry that you've lost your dad. 
Well, that man received some bad counsel, and he said, David's not really being friendly to you. He's looking for a way to, to spy out your territory. And so they humiliated David's men. They shaved their beards and, and cut off their garments at the waist and sent them on their way, which was really an act of war. Even today, if our ambassadors were to be treated the way these men were to be treated, we would assume that this is an act of war. And so David went against the Ammonites, and they um, were in alignment with, with Syria one more time in order to defeat them. So this is the only one of the nations that were outside the territory of Israel, but they were true enemies, and they had attacked Israel on other occasions. I say that because sometimes we get the idea that, that, um, that men like David were just um, dominant and expansionist and greedy and power-hungry, and nothing could be further from the truth. David left all the other nations alone. He didn't attack the Egyptians. He didn't go anywhere else. He knew that this is the territory that God had given Israel. And in faith, and in obedience, he was doing what God raised him up to do. This was not a man who's just greedy for power and wants to see his borders expanded just for the sake of his own name recognition. He is not aggressive toward any other nations. He is acting in faith and obedience. But the big thing here, I think, is we're supposed to get, and this is why I read Psalm 2 this morning, is that ultimately the activity of David we are supposed to see is a, an illustration of the activity of Jesus. And so these, some of these verses in chapter 2 will later be used as a direct reference to Jesus Christ. David was a, was a prefigurement, a, 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 an illustration of, those, of, of, the, of Jesus and what he would come to do. So looking back at chapter 2 again, just briefly, of, of Psalms, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So these nations aren't just the enemies of David and the enemies of Israel. They are the enemies of God. And God will ultimately raise up a king who will put down all his enemies. And so David's life story here at this juncture is a picture of what Jesus will ultimately come and do. So the nations say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But all of their intent is futile. So verse 4 of Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It's been observed that the only time the scripture records God laughing is when he is laughing at his enemies. He will speak to them in his anger. The day will come when all of God's enemies will easily be put into subjection. Easily. Martin Luther wrote about this in a, what, in a mighty fortress is our God. And he said how one small word will fell Satan and all of God's enemies. The day is coming when God will speak and every enemy of God will be put in subjection to him. We know from Psalm chapter 2 that every knee shall, shall bow and every tongue shall confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming. David is just a small illustration of that day when God will reign in power on this earth. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, David is saying this, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, which is the same thing that God the Father will say of Jesus. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. David possessed the territory that God had promised to Abraham. Jesus will possess the entire earth. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware, because God is working through his king. David defeated these nations that had troubled Israel for hundreds of years, and he did it just overnight. Because God was doing it through David. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. You can see the application here. It doesn't have to go this way. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. This is such a sobering warning to the nations today, as well as all mankind. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Think about it. We're to read these chapters about David's victories and see that the victories of Christ will be quicker more permanent, all-encompassing the whole world, and learn from it. Take, show discernment, take warning. You can either be judged or you can be blessed. It's pretty clear why these chapters are here, as Psalm 2 is telling us, unpacking it for us. God is judge. His enemies will be subdued and his friends will be blessed. Now, chapter 9, fascinating chapter. It's been described as the greatest grace chapter in the Old Testament. This powerful king, nobody stands in his way. He is not just thinking about himself. But in that power, in that sovereignty, he's thinking about others who think that they have no hope whatsoever. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember chapter 7 that we looked at last week, the Davidic covenant. And God has just said to David, I am going to bless you like you can't even imagine. I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to give you a dynasty. I'm going to have your throne established forever. And it'll never be taken away from you. And David sits back. Literally it says, David sat before the Lord. Awestruck at the grace of God that was being shown to him. And it causes him to think, how can I show grace to others? God's covenant with David reminds David of the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. And that in itself is a powerful lesson. The goodness of God 
ought to prompt goodness in us toward others. We are so blessed. Where God has promised us that he will love us for eternity, that nothing will ever separate us from his love, that we will be kept blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish the work that he has begun in us. He has lavished his grace upon us. He has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. How could God have blessed us more than he has? It ought to humble us and open our eyes to see the needs around us and how God might want to use us to bless others as we have been blessed. Our guy students at his hill went camping at Garner State Park on Friday, and um, Michael, my son, was with them, and so I asked for a report when he got back, and he told me, he says, you know, Dad, most of these guys have never cooked over a fire. And so Michael took some charcoal along, and so he piled up a little charcoal, and, he's going to, and he lit it, and he's going to wait for it to turn white so he could separate it and then put the meat on the grill. Well, guys were walking over and putting big logs on top of his charcoal. And, and, or they had their own fire with just big logs, and they were trying to cook their meat with the flames still shooting up off the rocks, off the logs. And Michael's going, no, you want to wait till you have coals. And you can get coals from logs, but it takes longer. That's why I'm using the charcoal. Wait, you don't cook over big flames. You cook over hot coals. He had no idea. Well, one of the Africans was there that we have with us this year. And so Michael was talking to him, and he, and, or somebody, one of the other students was, and said, have you ever been camping before? And his response was, not intentionally. <laughs> and then come to find out, until four years ago, the guy had never slept under a roof with a floor. Until just four years ago. His entire life had been spent camping. So he didn't appreciate it a whole lot. <laughs> we have been... So here we have, in our American and Canadian culture, people who have no idea what it's like to cook over a fire. And then we have our African brothers and sisters who have no idea, many of them, what it's like to live in a house, especially one with running water and electricity. And that is to say nothing of the disparity between what we have received spiritually in Christ and what most of this world never will know. We are blessed beyond imagination. And David's seeing that. David doesn't forget that when Samuel came to his home looking to anoint a king, his own family said, David doesn't even belong to us. They didn't even bring him in from the sheep. And they knew why Samuel was there. And they go, surely God would never choose David. And finally, God has to say to Samuel, it's none of these. Samuel says, bring in the last one. And God said, it's David. So no wonder when God has said to David, I'm going to bless you beyond anything you can ask or think. David remembers his commitment to Jonathan and to be good to him and his family. And so David says, are there not any relatives of Saul left? So clearly David didn't know. So it would seem that when David became king, as was, would have been customary at this time, 
all the relatives of Saul, because they were a different family from a different tribe, if they were still alive, they went into hiding. And they did not want to come to the attention of the king because they feared they'd be put to death. So now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. And I imagine when David heard that, he hadn't even heard the second half of the sentence yet. There is still a son of Jonathan. David's heart must have just leapt. You've got to be kidding. I didn't even know it. And see, none of the servants of David even know this. They have to bring in a servant of Saul. So these people, however many of them there are, and there are not very many left, we'll find out later, they have gone into a witness protection program. They are doing everything they can to keep themselves from coming to the notice of the king. But this man says, I know of one. And he happens to be a son of Jonathan. And then he also says, he's crippled in both feet. David doesn't even care. This is a man who can do nothing for David. But that's not what this is about. David wants to show the grace and kindness to another man, a former enemy, the house of Saul. That has the kindness and grace, same grace that has been shown to him. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Machar, the son of Amil, and Lo-Debar. Now everybody I've read on this says, it's not by chance that this man is living in a place called Lo-Debar. In the Hebrew, it means no pasture. This guy is living as an exile, as a fugitive, in an area where there's not even any grass. He is living in a destitute place, in fear that he would come to the attention of the king. He has nothing. He is nothing. Then the king then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machar, son of Amil, from Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. He would have thrown his crutches down, thrown himself onto the floor, and David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. You know he's expecting to die. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. <laughs> Talk about not being able to ask or think. So beyond anything we could comprehend. This man's just wondering if he can finish out his days without coming to the attention of the king. And now, not only is he in the king's crosshairs, but he's being blessed beyond anything he could imagine. So he prostrated himself again and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? The same thing that David called himself when he was running from Saul. 
and said, Saul, why are you chasing a dead dog through the wilderness? Then the king called Saul's servant, Ziba, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. Everything was restored. There is nothing like this in history. David has taken the wealth of his enemy, which rightly belonged to David, and he's given it to his enemy's grandson and said, it's yours. Enjoy. This is the king's wealth. And you and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands, his servant so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Verse 13, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. Pure grace. You remember in Sunday school class when Jeff was teaching, he reminded me of this passage. Ezekiel chapter 16 God talks about the destitute condition that Israel was in when he took her as his bride. Ezekiel 16, verse 4 says, As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. What a description of Israel. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age of fine ornaments. And he goes on to just talk about how he he raised her up, and then he married her. He made her beautiful. He adorned her. It says in verse 14, Your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you. I made you beautiful. And you became famous for your beauty, a beauty which I gave you. Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. I blessed you beyond imagination. When no one would take pity on you, I took you. I gave you life. I gave you beauty. And then you turn and trust in your beauty. This is why I think that God in his wisdom put chapter 9 between chapter 8 and 10. Mephibosheth is being blessed beyond imagination by a king who could have crushed him. Who could exterminate him. And nobody would think twice about it. This is why this man is so awed at what has happened to him. He will be humbled for the rest of his life as he should be 
because of the grace and kindness that's been shown to him. So many times, because we know that all of our sin has been forgiven, it's all been taken away, and we are blameless in Christ, we will be kept blameless until the day that Jesus returns, we can so cheapen the grace of God because we know we're secure, we're safe. And it shouldn't make us feel safe and secure as much as it should humble us for the rest of our days that God took mercy upon us. Instead, we boast in our beauty. God loved me. And we are not good toward others as God has been good toward us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul reminds the Corinthians, he says in verse 26, Consider your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast not in his beauty, but boast in the Lord and what he has done. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, We, the apostles, have become, in verse 13, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. You know, that's never easy to take. When people treat us like scum and coffee dregs, who wants coffee grounds? Who wants pond scum? And Paul says that's how we're treated, like scum and dregs. That's a whole lot easier to take when you know what God has made us in Christ Jesus. It doesn't make us boast in the face of those things, but we realize apart from the grace of God, that is exactly what I am. And nobody can treat me worse than what is already true of me apart from Jesus. Mephibosheth would not have been able to believe, much less just comprehend what had just happened to him. That this all-powerful king, who has the power of life and death, has chosen to use that power to bless him, as God has done for us in Jesus. The lesson here is that God's grace, his goodness, his loving kindness... His covenant faithfulness toward us should prompt us to be toward others as God is toward us. One of the consequences of David being this good to Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, is that the one tribe of Israel 
that should have been most suspicious and most disloyal to David, the tribe of Benjamin, now will become the tribe most loyal to David. Did you know that? Because in the days of Rehoboam, when the nation splits and ten tribes leave to form the nation of Israel and two tribes form the, the nation of Judah, it's Judah and one other nation, Benjamin. That would have been the last tribe you would have expected would have stayed loyal to David because that's the house of Saul. And David took the throne away from Saul. But they're the ones that stand with Judah. And I have to think it's because of what they saw, how David saw, they saw David treat his enemies with kindness, grace, beyond anything anyone could imagine. And the least of the Benjamites, Mephibosheth. He put him in his own palace, sitting at his own table like one of his own sons. Can you imagine? All the sons of David come in, the dinner bell rings. Here comes Absalom. Here comes Abner. All these different guys, they come in. Here comes Joab, the commander of the army. And they all come in to sit down for dinner. And Mephibosheth is sitting there. Grandson of Saul. Lame in both feet. Nothing he can contribute. Amazing. It not only made an impact upon Mephibosheth, it made an impact upon the family of David, upon the entire tribe of Benjamin, and the whole nation. It's amazing what grace does and how it impacts not only the recipient of the grace, but all the others who see it. It's life-transforming. We know that as we look at at Mephibosheth, there's a number of different um, applications that point to us. One that that I didn't see anybody else mention, so it's because of my great insight here that that I saw it, obviously. Um, Joke. Um, David didn't just put Mephibosheth at his table. But David, in restoring to Mephibosheth all the properties of his grandfather and having Ziba cultivate those fields and take in produce from them, he's not just making Mephibosheth a welfare recipient, far from it. He is a recipient of grace. And in that grace, Mephibosheth is being made now a contributor to society. That's a powerful lesson. He is not just a passive recipient of grace. That grace is meant to become something that is productive, life-transforming. So he goes from living in low Debar, where there is no pasture, now to being a successful farmer by the grace of the king. I see a strong parallel there with us. Again, God has bestowed his grace upon us, not just that we could go to heaven someday, but that a life could be transformed where what we were is not what we are now. And his grace is operative in our lives so that our lives can actually be a blessing to others. Other people can be sustained and blessed because of what God is doing in us. I, I got out Chuck Swindoll's commentary on the life of David, and I appreciated some of the things that he said here. I just want to read through some of it. 
just some observations and lessons that we can get from David's treatment of this man. Number one, once Mephibosheth enjoyed uninterrupted fellowship with his father, son of King Saul. So with Adam, who walked with the Lord in the cool of the evening and enjoyed an uninterrupted fellowship with his creator, father. Like Adam, Mephibosheth once knew what it was like to be in close relationship with the king. Number two, when disaster came, the nurse fled in fear, and Mephibosheth suffered a fall. It left him crippled for the rest of his life. Likewise, when sin came, Adam and Eve hid in fear. The first response of humanity was to hide from God, to find reasons for not being with God. As a result, mankind became a spiritual invalid and will be so forever on earth. Number three, David the king, out of sheer love for Jonathan, demonstrated the grace to the, demonstrated grace to his handicapped son. So God, out of love for his son, Jesus Christ, and the penalty he paid on the cross demonstrates grace to the believing sinner. He is still seeking people who are spiritually disabled, dead due to depravity, lost in trespasses and sins, hiding from God, broken, fearful, and confused, who are walking with God today because he demonstrated his grace to us out of love for his son. Number four, Mephibosheth had nothing, deserved nothing, could repay nothing. In fact, didn't even try to win the king's favor. He was hiding from the king. The same is true of us. We deserved nothing, had nothing, and could offer nothing. We were hiding when he found us. Number five, David restored Mephibosheth from a place of barrenness to a place of honor. He took this broken, handicapped person from a hiding place where there was no pasture land and brought him to the place of plenty right into the very courtroom of the king. The analogy is clear. God has taken us from where we were and brought us to where he is to a place of fellowship with him. He has restored us to what we once had in Adam. Number six, David adopted Mephibosheth into his family, and he became one of the king's sons. This is what God has done for the believing sinner, adopted us into the family of the heavenly king. He has chosen us, brought us into his family, and said, You, sit at my table and enjoy my food. I give you my life. Every Christian is adopted as a family member of God. Seven, Mephibosheth's disability was a constant reminder of grace. He had nothing but crutches, yet he was given the plenty of the king. Every time he limped from one place to the next, from one step to the next, he was reminded, I am in this magnificent place because of the pleasures, enjoying the pleasures of this position because of the grace of the king and nothing else. And number eight, when Mephibosheth sat down at the table of the king, he was treated just like any other son of the king. That's the way it is now and the way it will be throughout eternity when we feast with our Lord. Can you imagine sitting down at the table with Paul and Peter and John and perhaps asking James to pass the potatoes and talking to Isaac Watts and Martin Luther, Calvin and Wycliffe to break bread with Abraham and Esther, Isaiah, and yes, King David himself, along with Mephibosheth. And the Lord will look at you and he'll say, you're mine. You're as important to me as all my other sons and daughters. Here's the meal. Isn't that going to be a glorious day? Appreciate that word picture so much. The day is going to come when we're all going to sit 
at the banquet hall of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham's going to be there. Noah will be there. Adam will be there. David, Isaiah, John the Baptist. And we get to sit at their table. And they will say they get to sit at our table because they know that they are recipients of grace just as we are recipients of grace. And we all get to sit together because of the grace of God. What a good God he is. This man was humbled, promoted to royalty again, filled with gratitude, made a contributor to society, all by the grace of God. Paul says in Romans 5, I love that passage. You hear me make reference to it so many times. It's got to be my favorite passage in all of the Bible. He says, he four descriptions of us before we were saved. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. And while we are in that condition, but God demonstrates his love for us by giving his son to die for us. It's grace. Why has he done that? So that he would be glorified as we live humble, grateful lives, never forgetting for the rest of our lives what Jesus has done for you and me. How can we possibly boast? Living in that humility, brokenness, because of the goodness of God. And in turn, looking for opportunities to bless others, even when they are our enemy. We were the enemies of God. And he gave his son to die for us. Saul was the enemy of David. And David went looking for somebody in the house of Saul to bless. It's a supernatural. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And then Easter. Love this time of year more than just because of the weather or because it's turkey season. (laughs) Jesus died for us and rose again from the dead so that we could have life and have it abundantly. He takes the poor, destitute, poverty-stricken, helpless, handicapped, crippled, and has a sit at his table. And every one of us are examples of that grace. Miracles because of the grace of God. Jesus lives, and he lives in us. It's become our tradition for the last number of years on Palm Sunday to take some time to show in our own life testimonies to remind each other that God is performing the miraculous in every one of us. Every one of us is a miracle of the redeeming grace of God. Some are more spectacular in that than others. doesn't matter. But every one of us, God has taken the crippled and the helpless and brought us into his family. So, we will have three folks from Burning Bible Church next Sunday sharing their testimonies. Jack Vizuet's going to share. Marcel Smith is going to share. She's trying to hide back there. 
and um, Mark Griggs, my son-in-law, is going to share. So I really hope you make a point of being here. It's great. I don't know if you know it, but back in the 60s and 70s, there was a movement that God brought about in the United States called the Lay Witness Renewal Movement. It just, it, it just got that title. It didn't start out with a title. It started out as just average, plain Christians sharing their testimonies in churches that they were going to as visitors over a weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And revival began sweeping through this part of the United States. Principally, that movement was focused on Methodist and Presbyterian churches where people had never heard someone say, I know Christ personally. Let me tell you how he has worked in my life. And so lots of church people were getting saved just by hearing someone else say, I know Jesus lives. I'm an example of it. It is powerful to hear other people say, this is who Jesus is. I know him to live. And then Easter Sunday, we've been looking for an opportunity for, for Vincent to be able to preach again. And I haven't been traveling as much as I sometimes do. And so we wanted to get him in sooner than later. He's not getting any younger. None of us are. And so Vincent has agreed to, preaching, uh, to preach on Easter Sunday. So he'll be here. I'm really looking forward to these next two Sundays. We have a good God. God is so good. We are Mephibosheth, each of us. And we've been so blessed. Let me close us in prayer. Thank you, Father, for just showering upon us your loving kindness, promising us, God, it would never be withdrawn, new every day. Truly, God, it is grace. It will always be undeserved. I pray, God, that we would just be kept in that place of humble dependence and gratitude because of who you are and all you have done for us in your son Jesus I pray that we would also Lord just live not being complacent not taking for granted your grace but remembering that you are the sovereign powerful king lord of the earth and you will reign supreme and that you will crush your enemies. And yet, while we were, were your enemies, you gave your son to die for us. Pray that your holiness and your righteousness and your power, God, would keep us in that place of dependence and humility. In Jesus' name, amen.